Well, thanks, Holly. Good evening and welcome to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Mings. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. And one of the things that we're committed to here at Uni Church is letting God speak through His Word. Uh, we've been working through this book called John or John's Gospel. And we believe that God, through His Word, speaks to us, uh, that He's speaking to us in this message. And so, what we want to do now is actually ask that as we come to this, we won't just see this as an ancient text, although that's what it is. But we'd see this as God talking to us about how to live and how to see the world His way. So when you join me as we ask God now to do that by His Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this part of Your Word, as we've heard tonight that Word read, we ask that by Your Spirit You would speak to us. Not just giving us little nuggets that we can take home, but that we would see Jesus through Your eyes. We would see ourselves through the way that You see us and that You might change us to be people that understand you and live for you. Lord, we pray tonight that through your spirit, you would speak in your son's name. Amen. Well, one of the biggest pursuits of life is the search for satisfaction. Right? You just got to look online and walk the self-help aisle of a bookstore if anyone ever goes there anymore. And what you find is that book after book, article after article, are all claiming to hold the secret to satisfaction. Uh, 21 lessons for the 21st century. 12 rules for life. Rich dad, poor dad. How to win friends and influence people. Uh, They're all titles of books that help us try and work out how we get the most out of life. How we get satisfied. Uh, We're a society in search of satisfaction. Uh, we look for satisfaction in all sorts of different places, in, in possessions, in stuff. Like, who doesn't want more stuff? Right? Then there's, there's relationships and, and education and, and just general life happiness. The desire for satisfaction is, is almost universal. It permeates all cultures. It's stressed, stretched across all generations. It's nothing new, right? But what's interesting is that of all the generations and times and ages that this world has ever seen, The one that has had the most possessions, the one that has had the most power to choose, the most opportunities before them, is our culture today. It's you and me. And what's interesting is that sociologists tell us that we are the most depressed society that has ever lived. Why is that? We have the most, the most stuff, the most opportunities. We coat our lives in a promise of satisfaction, in in hopes and dreams that really rarely deliver. And it leaves us empty. There's that song. I don't know if you know it, but I can't get no. Did you know that song? Raise of hands. Satisfaction. Yeah. If you don't, it's probably a good thing. But it's, it's, it's the mantra of our world. I can't get no satisfaction. I want satisfaction, but I can't get it. What we do is we look for it and then we're left empty. Why? Well, one or two things happens. One, we either achieve that thing that we're after, we get there and then we find out oh, it wasn't enough. I need another one. I need a faster car, a better ring, you know, a better boyfriend, uh, or whatever it is. Or we work out that we'll never reach it. It's just too far away. I can't get there. I keep trying and I'm trying and trying. And then I get to this devastating conclusion. I'm never going to be satisfied. And we end up in a heap on the ground. The very fact that humanity is still searching for satisfaction should tell us that something's not right. 
Something's not right in what we're doing. There's something that we're doing that, that doesn't deliver. So I want you to come back with me and come to the first century AD to the part of the Bible that Holly just read for us where we meet a woman who seems to be defined by her search for satisfaction. What's different about her is that she finds something that changes the way she thinks about satisfaction. It changes the way that she lives. It changes everything about her world. So come with me and let me fill you in on a little bit of the backstory of what's going on. Here we meet this guy called Jesus that John's gospel is all about. And he's on his way to Galilee from Judea. And he has to pass through this area called Samaria. That's some area. That's what they call that, right? Samaria. It's not why. So, so I thought it was funny. You can laugh at me. It's cool. So he's got to pass through Samaria. Now, the thing is that, that Jews are, are, and Samaritans, they're the people who live in Samaria, Jews and Samaritans, they don't really get on. They kind of hate one another, like the Montagues and the Capulets, right? If you're into Shakespeare, that's the reference. Um, and so they don't, they don't kind of like one another. They've got different views about God and different views about how to live. And you know, some Jews even used to say, it's recorded, that to have the shadow of a Samaritan fall on you as a Jew would make you unclean. Just, just enough for the, the shadow to fall on you. That's, a, that's not the nicest relationship, right? Imagine that, walking on, whoa, get out of my way. You know? <laughs> shadow boxing adds a whole new level. But, but here, Jesus is passing through this area. Now, they don't really get on. And he comes to a well where he comes across this woman who seems to be looking for satisfaction. He comes across this woman at this well, and he asks her for a drink. Now, basically, she responds by saying, why are you talking to me? What, what do you want? Like, well, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. It's this Jew-Samaritan thing that has come up. Why are you even asking me this question? I want you to listen to Jesus' response to come into the answer to the search for satisfaction. John chapter 4, verse 10, be on the screen. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Now you hear that, and you're like, what is he on about? Right? Who says that? Who says, I'll give you living water? If you knew who I am, then you'd ask me for drink. I'll give you... It's kind of this cryptic response. And that's exactly what this woman says. Look at verse 11. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> and the well is deep. How are you going to get the water out? Right? So where do you get this living water? I think imagine how she's saying it. And then she kind of starts questioning, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Who do you think you are? Now, this is where we hear that the well has a bit of history. It's a well of, of a distant relative of, of Jesus' called uh, Jacob. And he built this well long ago. Now, Jacob, he was known by another name. His name was Israel. And that's where we get the nation of the Jews, the nation of Israel from. He was the father of the nation of the Jews. He built this well. He was also the one that would inherit the blessing that God had promised to a man named Abraham. God had promised to Abraham that, that he would have many children and many descendants. Uh, that he would be moved into a land and that land would be his inheritance and his family's inheritance forever. And that, that God would bless all nations through him and his family. Well, that promise was also given to Jacob. Now, come with me to Genesis 28. If you want to flick back, you can, or you can look up on the screen. Have a look at what... God actually says there to, to Jacob, The Lord was standing there beside Jacob saying, I am the Lord, 
the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out towards the west and the east and the north and the south and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now, John, who's writing this gospel, he's collecting all the accounts around the life of the person of Jesus. Why does he tell us this about the well, that it was Jacob's well? Is it just one of those kind of, you know, trivia night buffs? They love going along to trivia nights and knowing it was Jacob's well, and that's an important thing to know. And I just wanted to put that in there. Probably was Jacob's well, but, but why is he telling us this? Well, he's telling us to show that Jesus has come to fulfill the promises God gave to Jacob. There is a a new one of Israel coming, who's coming to bring those promises to the blessings of the earth. Jesus has come to this world to show that he has come to fulfill what God promised to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Now to the woman, as she, she hears Jesus saying he can bring up this living water that will kind of have life. She thinks he sounds arrogant, surely, right? It's like Jesus has over-promised and under-delivered. Like living water. <laughs> Who do you think you are? This is Jacob's well. The father of the Jews and the Samaritans, he dug this well. Are you saying that you are better than him? Are you saying that what you have is better than him? And John wants us to recognize that that's exactly what Jesus is saying. <laughs> he is saying that in me, you meet someone even more special than Abraham. Even more special than Isaac, even more special than Jacob. The one through whom the promises of God will come to the world. And don't forget, he's talking to a non-Jew, a half-breed Jew, a Samaritan. John wants us to see the contrast between Jacob and Jesus. He wants to see the contrast between what Jacob brought and what Jesus brings. Between the promises of God to Israel and the fuller and better promises that Jesus now brings to the world. Look at verse 13. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, pointing to the well. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sounds pretty great. Sounds better than what Jacob offered. What's on offer here isn't just something to temporarily quench this woman's thirst but to quench the ultimate dissatisfaction in life, death. Eternal life is what is on offer. When you think for a moment, what is the greatest satisfaction you could ever have? What could be bigger than life forever? Every experience we chase after, every relationship, every position in the workplace, every possession in the world, all of them come to their ultimate end in death. Death robs us of our satisfaction. But Jesus rocks up here to this historic well in the line of this historic person, Jacob, and says, I bring something better. Life forever. Jesus' claim is that he comes to bring life forever. Can you imagine that? Life that does not end with no more mourning or crying or pain. Complete satisfaction knowing God in the, in the person, being around people who are perfected as well, life that lasts forever without that horrible, sickening reality of death robbing us of life's joy and blessings and happiness and satisfaction. See, if we're living life to get the most out of life now, then 
we're going to need to make our life count. We're going to need to have a preoccupation and, and a kind of focus on making the most out of here and now because you've got to milk life for all it's worth if that's all we've got. But here Jesus comes and he flips the whole search for satisfaction on its head. Life forever, life without end. It changes the horizon. It lifts us from this tiny little blip in front of us to eternity and says, that's what I'm offering you. Man. Verse 15, Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. You're like, oh, she doesn't get it, right? He's, he's offered her eternity and she's like, yeah, I want some water to drink. I want this living water. She misses the significance of who Jesus is and what he is offering her at first glance. And so in order to help her understand the significance of what he is saying, Jesus reveals more of who he is. He says in verse 16 to this woman, go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. Now, Jesus is making it blatantly clear that he's not interested in a romantic relationship with this woman. As you look through the Bible's story, you keep seeing men meet women at wells and they get married, like Jacob met Rachel. He was like, sweet. And, they, and it keeps happening throughout the Bible. Man meets woman, they fall in love, the foot goes up, and it's like, this is great. This is what life is about. And there's a sense where you start reading this and you go, what will go on? Is Jesus saying, you know, come to me, babe. And we'll, we'll, life will be awesome. You know, come to me. I am just, I'm the romantic. You know, I, I'm Fabio, the most beautiful man in the universe. Anyway, he's a guy. You should check him out. No. Jesus says, go call your husband. And tell him to come back here. But he's not just showing he's not interested in a romantic relationship. He's gently letting her know who he is. He's letting her know that he knows the truth about this woman. And what he says is the truth. And that's where we begin to see the significance of the truth. Verse 17, listen to her answer. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Can you imagine that? The moment you meet someone who knows everything about you, your life bared open. There's a sense of like, oh, they can see me. They know all. They know what I've done. They know the thoughts and actions of what I've said. But there's also a sense of relief. Oh, nothing to hide. He, he sees all. What this woman has been doing throughout her life has been adding in to life, to try and cover up the issues that are there. I'll give you an illustration of what she's doing. A few years ago, I started to do a little more cooking. Now, I'm married to Sarah. We have four kids. Um, Sarah's usually been the one doing all the cooking in our house. Now, I'd always been pretty good at the, the solid staples of cooking, like two-minute noodles and baked beans on toast. Like, I'm awesome at those staples. I can do them really well. But I thought a few years ago, I should really start contributing to the culinary delights of our family. And as, as the guy, I should kind of do some of this. And so I thought I'd start an experiment uh, to, to kind of work out how to do far more difficult dishes, like stir fries, right? <laughs> Takes a lot of skill to do a stir fry. And so I started there, and I, and, I, and I began with that stir fry sauce stuff you get from the shop. So you just put the meat, the veggies, and the sauce, and you're like, look at that. You know, I felt like a two-star chef already. This is great. We're eating. The food is good. There's rice. What more do you want? And then I thought, you know what? I can probably do this without the sauce. There's just a few things. I've read the ingredients, some emulsifiers, some salt, some soy sauce. It should be all fine. And so I thought I'd go through our pantry and make my own stir-fry sauce. I don't know if you've ever tried this. It's great. 
And so off I went. I started making stir-fry sauce and tasted it a little bit. Uh, I put a little bit of like salt in and a bit of ginger. I thought, I had ginger. Yeah, it's cool. I tasted it. It was just like bland as anything. I'm like, oh, this doesn't taste any good. And I'm like, I need to give it some more taste, some more zing. And kind of, so then I found some honey. I'm like, great, mix in the honey. That'll give it a bit of sugary stuff. It starts to feel good. And then I'm like, ah, oh, it's a little bit dry. What am I going to do? And I looked through the fridge and found a bottle of lime sauce that said guaranteed fresh. I'm like, sounds good. <laughs> Put a little bit of lime in there because that's what Thai cooking has. And that, that's okay. And so I'm like, that'll be good. And then I'm like, this still looks too dry. And I, I don't know. And then here's where I made my biggest mistake. And <laughs> you're like, no, you made many mistakes already, Rowan. <laughs> anyway. Here's what I'm like, I know it needs more kind of sauciness. And all stir fries have the base of soy sauce, right? And so I went to the, went to the we got out of the fridge, got the soy sauce, I went, oh yeah, a cup, maybe a cup and a half. And I was like, you need sauce. Anyway, I mix it in and all, everyone here who's putting their hands on their face, you've done it too. Thank you. I taste it, it's just like salty as, and I'm like, oh, I made a mistake. Ever done that when you're cooking? But how do you get back from that? What I did was, I'm like, all right, what, what, how do you undo soy sauce or too much salt? So I'm like, I know, sugar. <laughs> so I put sugar in there and it's like, oh, it's a bit better. And I'm like, oh, but it's still hot. And how do I get rid of this so like the, the Sarah will be happy to eat it? I'm like, I know the thing that masks all other flavors, chili sauce. <laughs> so I put some chili sauce in. Anyway, it just ended up in a mess because I just consistently tried to add, to add, to add to cover up my mistakes. That's exactly what this woman has been doing in her life. She's made some mistakes in life. She hasn't lived the way that she ought. Uh, And so instead of coming to God and and dealing with the realities of what she's done, she's added in another husband, another guy, another relationship. She keeps adding the ingredients of life in to try and cover over the cracks that have come from her brokenness. More relationships, more things, more experiences. And you know what? That's exactly what we do, isn't it? We live our lives... And we try and cover up the areas that we've got issues. We don't want others to know about them. So we just add a bit more fun in, a bit more relationships, try a new thing, you know, redo the room, buy some new shoes, get a new boyfriend. I don't know. Whatever we do, we we change things around because we want to cover over the cracks and the insufficiencies with ourselves. You know, there are some things in life when you have more of them, it's better. Uh, You can't apply that rule to husbands. That's the reality of this passage. The more husbands you have does not make life better. Some women will even say one is enough or too much, right? But psychologists keep telling us that one of the keys to happiness are deep, strong, and stable relationships. This woman, she's had none of that. Just a lineup of dysfunctional and broken relationships. Five husbands and the one you are with is not currently your husband. And that has left her outcast and empty in the middle of the day in a well, trying not to bump into anyone thirsty for satisfaction. But when she meets Jesus, we see him gently expose her life. He knows her like no one else ever has. He speaks into the realities of what what is going on. He doesn't rebuke her. John had told us just a chapter before in verse 17 of chapter 3, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus offers to quench a thirst and meet a need that this woman probably never knew she had. Her dry mouth and the distant well were not the only problems for her. Even her five husbands and the present de facto were were just symptoms of the problem. See, relationships are only a foretaste of the one relationship we were made for. Relationship with God, relationship with the one who made us. And Jesus has come to save this woman from her own slavery. Not just to loneliness, 
but to save her from rebellion against God, from sin and from death, and put her back in right relationship with the true and living God. Her ultimate need was not to be in the arms of the perfect bachelor, but the arms of a loving God. That was what she needed. That is what we need. But here's the thing. When it comes to God, so many of us try to cover up our lives by adding new things in, try and hide from Him the realities of what we've done and who we are. But this story tells us you cannot hide your brokenness from God. You can't. You can't think you'll be able to get by Him with half-truths. He sees all, He knows all, and He knows you. There are no dark corners kept from His sight. No skeletons in our closets He hasn't seen. No wounds that He's unaware of. As we hear this story, we hear the reality. We need to stop trying to cover up our mistakes by adding more in and finding satisfaction in different areas. We need to recognize the significance of the truth that life is not found in covering our mistakes, but in coming to the one who's forgiven them and letting him offer us life forever, life beyond death and forgiving the realities of what we have done. Here's where you see the significance of a truth. Now, the Samaritans and the Jews, they had worshipped God very differently. In reality, they worshipped a different God. The Samaritans worshipped God on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews, they worshipped God in Jerusalem, because they believed that where God had told them to worship Him at the temple. But the Samaritans went, no, no, we want to worship God on this mountain. The Samaritans, they had only held the first five books of the Old Testament to be true. So Genesis to Deuteronomy, they ignored the other 30, 34 Old Testament books from Joshua to Malachi. God had spoken much to them, but the Samaritans had listened too little. So Jesus pulls this woman up at this moment after bearing her life and showing her a glimpse of who he is. Verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. She's recognized something about Jesus, but not who he is fully yet, that he's he's able to look into her life. Then listen to Jesus' response. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is crystal clear. Salvation comes from the Jews. It doesn't come from Muhammad or from Buddha or Confucius or from the atheist or from the philosopher. It comes from the Jews and specifically from this Jew, Jesus. The Jews and nobody else were the vehicle for God's truth. This woman's people, the Samaritans, they've got it badly wrong. Jesus says, you're worshipping in the wrong place. You are worshipping the the wrong God. But there is a day coming, and this is what was revolutionary. When the long drawn out arguments between Jew and Samaritan about place of worship become irrelevant because you won't worship in this place or in that place. Worship will be on God's terms and will come through Jesus. See, true worship of God is not about a place, Jesus is saying, but a person. It's not about Jerusalem, but Jesus. There is not a place on the face of the planet, not a building or a part of a building, no location, no country, no town that will bring you into the presence of God. But when you meet Jesus, you meet God the Son in the flesh. 
When you meet Jesus, he sees you and he knows you. And when you meet Jesus, he offers you life. So many times I hear people say, look, I like to think of God as this or that. Or, look, I like to worship God in my way. I like to do it this way or that way. I like to do this or that. But this passage shows us you cannot take Jesus seriously. You cannot think he's a good teacher or a moral leader and ignore what he says here. God is to be worshipped on his terms, not ours. It might seem arrogant. Who does he use to tell me you know, how to act? Who does he think he is to tell me that I must worship him that way? God? Yes. <laughs> he is. He is God. He made you and sustains you. Think about it. The word God, it literally means um, a person or thing of supreme value, of ultimate value. The supreme or ultimate reality. The things that we place our supreme value in is our God. For so many of us, that's our own desires, our own um, longings. Uh, I'd like to do this, or I'd like to do that. And we put ourselves in the position of God. And this woman, she's met God, and she says, no, no, you don't get to worship God in your way. You can only come to God on His terms. And it won't be in a place in Jerusalem or, or a mount in, in Jerusalem. It will be here, me. For many of us, we place our ultimate worth and the supreme value in our lives in things like happiness, satisfaction, me. We think we can pull the swifty on God. We think we can imagine him away at times, irrespective of what we think. We must remember what Jesus says. He is God. We worship him on his terms, not ours. And on this day, this Samaritan woman had come face to face with God. And he saw everything. Everything. He knew her. At that moment, I think she realizes that she had met her maker. Very quickly, she realized he didn't need her, but she needed him. Have you been approaching Jesus like he's someone who needs you? Like he's someone who's saying, look, I really, really want you on your team. Can you please come along and please come join my team and be part of the crew? If you've been thinking in your life, you know what? Jesus would be so blessed to have me on his team and me serve alongside him. We need to meet the Jesus of history. That is the real Jesus, not the one that we imagine in our heads. And he says, you need me. I don't need you. You need life. You need to deal with the reality of your brokenness. And I offer that to you. I have come because you need me. Not because I need you. When you meet Jesus, when you see who he is, don't keep playing around in the dark. Don't keep trying to add things into your life to cover up the cracks that you know that are there. Pretending that he isn't there. This woman is showing us, Jesus is showing you, come to him on his terms. He's a God of love. He's a God who has offered you life. Put aside this idea of trying to find satisfaction by covering up the cracks in life, and rather expose yourself, the reality of who you are, to God. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way I haven't treated you. I'm sorry for the times I've turned my back on you. I'm sorry for not uh, treating you as my God and and worshipping you on your terms instead of mine. Please forgive me. Thank you so much that Jesus died in my place and rose again so that I can have life and trust him. And experience life that does not end. 
And I think that's exactly what this woman does. Look at her change in attitude in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, the Messiah was, was a promise to the Jews that God's promised king would come along. God's promised king would come to rule the world forever. Someone in the line of David who would be king and rule forever, to whom death would not be the end, that would give life to his people and, and begin God's kingdom forever. She says, I know that there is this promised king coming who is the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Literally, he says, I am. Jesus is the savior of the world. He is the promised king. He could not be clearer. People say, oh, sometimes you know, people came along later on and got Jesus mixed up. He wasn't really, he didn't really think he was God's promised king, but just a good teacher. Here, John, his closest friend, has him recorded of saying exactly that. I am the Messiah. I am God's promised king. I am the one who will rule the world forever. I am your ruler and I made you. And look at what happens to this woman the moment she realizes who she is faced with. There's an immediate response, verse 28. The woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? The people left the town and made their way to him. This woman has found true satisfaction. Not in filling in her life with more relationships and stuff and possessions and and money and financial freedom, but by bearing herself to the king of the universe and saying, save me, you are my king. I think that's exactly what this woman does by the response uh, of the people when they come back that we'll see a little later. But Before we get there, I want to show you four responses to Jesus. Four responses that hold this whole big, fat, long chapter together and help us to go, why is this all here in one big bit? See, throughout this account, we see four responses to Jesus. And it's like John, who wrote this, who pulled them together and organized them this way, is cataloging the way we can respond to Jesus. The first response is the Samaritans, the people from which this woman had come. They hear the woman's story when she's run back and they come to check Jesus out for themselves. They leave the town and come out to where he is, to this well. Despite their background, despite their hatred for the Jews, there's something about what this woman says. And there's something about Jesus that captures them, that changes them. Look at the change that happens. Verse 39 of chapter 4. Now, the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of what the woman had said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. If you're here tonight and you've not yet come to Jesus as God's promised king, the one who gives life. Take the lead from these Samaritan people who took seriously what happened for this woman. This is a real testimony of real events that happened in real history. They came to check him out. Have you? Have you checked out Jesus? Have you spent time as an adult thinking through who he claims to be and what he has done and how he makes sense of life? 
Have you looked at the, the history around this guy and the secular sources that point us to the fact that he really did live and really did do these things and really did rise from the dead? Whatever you do tonight, don't hear this testimony of this woman and what God is saying to you and walk away. Come and check him out. Come like these Samaritan people who come and investigate and see, see what he has to offer and recognize that he is the savior of the world. That he offers life forever. Stop dabbling in the dark, trying to cover over your failings. and Come to the one who sees you perfectly anyway and put your life in his hands and trust him. Make him your king, your ruler, the person who has that place of ultimate authority in your life. Come to the one who offers you life that does not end. What greater satisfaction could there be than that? Than knowing that death is not your end, but that life forever with no more mourning or crying or pain is on offer. What more could you want? Who else could you turn to? Come to Jesus, not just because he offers to satisfy but because he is your God and he is your king. The Samaritan were convinced that Jesus was God's king and they made him their king. What's stopping you tonight from making Jesus your king? Really, what's stopping you? Don't just listen to what I say, or what your friend says. Come to Jesus yourself. Come and read the scriptures. Ask someone who invited you. Can we sit down and read through the Bible together and see what Jesus says? I want to know if he is who he claims to be. Come to Jesus. You won't regret it. The second response is the response of the the royal official. You heard about it when we read through the story. Let me read from verse 46. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to Jesus and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Verse 49, Sir, the official said to Jesus, come down before my boy dies. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone is right on the brink of some terrible health issue, death, or or something that is just really, really bad. There's a sense in which you'll do anything to see them recover from what they're at, from what's going on for them. You want to find them the best doctor, the best medication. You're searching on Google, being like Dr. Google, and finding all the stuff you can, and about everything you can possibly do. And here, you hear the desperation this guy's a royal official, but he's, he's heard of Jesus and he thinks, you know what? What my son needs is not, not this or that. My son is about to die. He needs Jesus. So he leaves Capernaum, a long, long, long walk, comes to Jesus and says, come, come. You kind of get it. He wants to get his son out of this predicament. He wants Jesus to save him from this crisis. And for so many of us, that's the reason we come to Jesus. We're in some sort of crisis in life. Life has gotten beyond the point where we can get ourselves out and we, we get to that point and spiraled out of control and we do like the, the Hail Mary prayer, Lord, if you exist, God, if you're whatever, save me now. Maybe that's you today. Maybe your life has spiraled out of control and you're thinking, maybe Jesus is my answer to, to get me through, to, to get me better, to, to get me through to the next stage so I can live a satisfied life. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't promise to fix our present crisis. He doesn't promise to, to fill in the cracks of life here and now. He doesn't promise to make life easy. Nowhere in the scriptures does he promise to do that here and now, but he does promise this, that he'll deal with our greatest need. 
the reality that we deserve death because we've rejected the God who's given us life. He promises to deal with our brokenness so that we might have life forever. This royal official, there's something about Jesus that's drawn him in. There's a crisis that's brought him there, but he goes away a changed man, a different man who hasn't just come to Jesus because of the crisis, but a man who trusts Jesus as his king. Look at verse 50. Go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. Can you imagine that? You've come all this way to Jesus. You're like, you need to come and fix my son. Like, no, no, I'm just going to say, go and it'll be back. Like, what have you done? You need to move. I came all this way. He's back there. Yeah, what doctor says that? He'll be fine. <laughs> He's dying. <laughs> you, doctor, get back here and fix, fix, right? But the man doesn't say that. Like, I would. Look at what John records happened. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. How convinced must he have been that what Jesus said happened would happen to be able to turn at that moment and walk away back to his son going, okay, I came to Jesus. Like that takes guts. He takes Jesus at his word. He listens to what he says. He's like, okay, I can't see it, but I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are. I've come to you in crisis, but I depart from you in confidence. Literally, his son's life hangs in the balance of Jesus' word. And here we see what it is to believe, to trust. It's to move from the crisis, oh, help, I need you, to confidence of, I trust that you are God's king. That you do offer life that lasts forever. Jesus said to this woman at the well, and he said to you and me here tonight, I'm offering you life that does not end. We can't see that. We're not in a position where we can, we can look forward to the future and go, oh yeah, I can see all of that. But Jesus says, trust me. Look at who I am. Look at what I have said. Look at what I have done. I made you and I love you and I am offering you life. And the right response is to walk away confident with your life hanging on Jesus' words. That's what it means to believe him. It says, I'm going to place you in that position of my king. I'm not going to search for satisfaction outside of you. I'm going to trust you that you will give me life. Trusting our satisfaction and our soul's destiny to this man, Jesus, is what it means to believe. And the question is, is that how you've responded to Jesus tonight? Is that what you have done with your life? Are you able to trust your life to him? The third response we get is these Galileans. John four forty five. When they entered Galilee, Jesus and those with him, the Galileans welcomed Jesus because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they had also gone to the festival. The Galileans, right, they're there and they've seen these amazing acts that Jesus has done. They were there during the wedding at Cana and they've seen the water into wine or heard about it. And they're like, Jesus, come back. You're great. We want to see more magic tricks. We want to see more amazing feats that happen. It's kind of like the circus has come to town. And people are like, show me your miracles. People come and they want to see miracles. They want to see some amazing stuff. They're not coming to Jesus as the king. They're not thinking that they need anything from him. They just want to be entertained by him or get through a little blip in life to make them happy and get them through the next day or, or fix some little thing that's there, some sickness, some ailment, some, something that's going on. And so many of us today approach Jesus like these Galileans. We come to him as some sort of divine vending machine. We rock up to Jesus and you're like, what do I need? I want a bit more happiness in life, you know. What does that cost? Oh, a few prayers and go to church a couple of times, vend. Great. And they just poke Jesus like some sort of divine vending machine. 
If you're coming to Jesus because you want to make your life better or you want a crutch to get through the, the hard times, you want to add a bit more Jesus to your life to give it more sparkle, Jesus is like, no, you've got me wrong. I come as king, not as crutch. I come to rule. I come to offer you life. And that means surrendering everything to me. For I made you. Jesus says in verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He condemns the Galileans as little more than a circus crowd coming to watch a fascinating act. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. You won't take me for who I am. You won't look at me seriously. Come to Jesus because of who he is, not because of what he brings for the here and now. That's what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. I am the Messiah. To the one who is trying to fill up life and get satisfied with all that she could, she stops and recognizes that he is king and runs and tells others. And because of that, everything would change for her. When you meet Jesus, you meet your maker, not just a miracle worker. The question is, is he the one to get you through life? Or is he your king? Have you put your life in his hands? What crisis will it take for you to come to Jesus? What could be greater than the satisfaction of eternal life that he brings? What uncovering of your heart will it take to realize that you, like all of us, are broken, that we need forgiveness? Don't come to the miracle maker. Come to the Messiah. But in the middle of all these responses, there's the fourth response. And it really is something quite odd. I don't know if you heard it when we read through. It's the response of the disciples. Jesus' followers, those who are in, who are like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Jesus guy. I'm following him and I love what he's doing. I don't know if you picked it up in Holly's reading, but it's the bit about the disciples and the food. And you're like, what? It's weird, right? Jesus has met this woman at the well. Um, Then the Samaritans kind of come and they're about to see who Jesus is. This woman has got him and she's gone off to tell the people. And then the Samaritans are kind of coming back. And we're starting to see the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob fulfilled. The blessing of God to all nations is happening. And Jesus is here at the very well that kind of started lots of it. And his closest followers come up at that moment with it. The gospel's going out and the kingdom is being preached. And Jesus is doing his work. And these people from Samaria are about to come. And his disciples say, Jesus, what's for lunch? Oh, that's it. Look at this, verse 26. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They're like, "Mm he's talking over there. In the meantime, verse 31, the disciples kept urging him. Remember, the woman's gone off. Samaritans are coming back to hear the news of the gospel. The disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? And they're kind of there just going, what's going on? I'm hungry. What's he eating? I wonder what it is. Is it salmon? Or would he get some fish? Did someone bring him something at this moment? You're kind of like, well, what is going on here? Listen to Jesus' response, verse 34. It's a bit cryptic. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say that there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. 
Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. Literally, if the disciples at that moment had had opened their eyes and looked to the horizon of the fields, they would have seen the dust from the Samaritan town coming to Jesus. They would have recognized that what Jesus was doing at this moment, that the, the gospel, the news of who he is and the life that he was offering was going to the nations. This was the fulfillment of everything that God had been saying is beginning here at this point. But the Samaritans, they're coming out and the disciples, all they care about is lunch. Jesus is saying that lunch can wait. The harvest is now, guys. You know, get with it. What are you doing? It's time for the the reaper to draw a wage. It's time for the disciples to get on with the job at hand of proclaiming the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the king. So often those of us who have come to Jesus, who trust him, who who drunk from that living water and look forward to an eternity with him, we become complacent. We just kind of cruise along in life. We know who he is, but we get distracted and our eyes drop from the horizon of his mission and his glory to just what am I doing this week? What am I having for lunch? We slip back into life's precious moments. We Instagram our lunch with that nice depth of field that makes it look amazing. And it's like, yeah, that's my lunch. Oh, we get on with life by spending time wondering where our neighbors get their possessions from. What investments have they got? How did they do this or that? What degree did that person get? And how can I get into that sort of job? Or how did that guy get all the girls? Or that girl get such a good guy? How does that happen? And we start thinking about life, about the here and the now, and about getting satisfaction. And we forget that the Savior has come. We forget that he has come on a mission to see the world come to him in fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Jesus came from heaven to earth. The maker became part of his creation. And he would allow his creation to nail him to a cross, to die in our place so that we could be forgiven, so we could have life, so we could live for him, so the world might be saved. And so often we are more captivated with lunch than with Christ. What is your goal in life? If you trust in Jesus, it ought to be this, to live for him, to point the world around you to him. You've got all eternity for rest and relaxing. If you have eternal life, if you've trusted in him, dealing with your sin and your life is in his hands, that's what the future holds. What is now for? Now is the time to tell the world, Jesus is your God. He died for you. He is risen again. Come and have life. What are you living for? What will make you satisfied this year, this week? Family and friends, a career, grades, a holiday, overseas travel, financial freedom. Jesus says to all the things that we seek satisfaction from, those goals are not big enough. You're thinking so small, lift your eyes to the horizon of eternal life. And sharing this news of Jesus with the world around, for it will give you life forever. You will be in relationship with a God you were made to be in relationship with forever. Stop mucking around with things that won't last. That's what I need to hear. Stop spending your life in all its brokenness, chasing after crack filling. And rather drink from the well of eternal life that Jesus offers. Treat him as your king. Satisfaction is found in coming to Jesus and nowhere else will you live for him. Let me pray.
Lord God, tonight as we think through who you are, as we reflect on the way that you have spoken to us by your word tonight, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to see the realities of the significance of who Jesus is. Lord, we confess that we muck around with all sorts of false satisfactions, things that don't fill us, and we miss the reality of who you are. We pray that this night through your word and by your spirit, you would bring us to recognize who Jesus is in his fullness. That maybe for the first time, those of us who have not come to you would come, that you would bring us in and help us, Lord, to trust in your forgiveness, to trust in the life that you've offered and live with you as our King. For those of us, Lord, that have trusted in Jesus, we pray that we wouldn't get complacent. You'd lift our eyes to the harvest of the mission that you've caught us up in and that we might speak of the joy of knowing you and that we might trust in Jesus to the end. We pray that this night, Lord, you'd fix our eyes on your son as the king, the Messiah, the ruler of all, and the one who offers life forever. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can spend a, a quick moment going through some questions. Um, so hopefully you've texted them in. Um, they should come up on the screen. Uh, first question, how can we trust that the Bible is the ultimate authority of God? Yeah, great question. Um, so how can we trust that this Bible is what God says to us? Well, firstly, you've got to go, um, who is Jesus? Uh, if Jesus is who he says he is, uh, then um, he's God. And what he says is God's word to us. And John talks about that the whole way through. He keeps talking in John's gospel, I've come from the Father. He's the one who's ascended to heaven and has now descended to us. And John's gospel starts out by saying, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. He was with God and he was God. And so the claim of Jesus, as reported by the Bible, is that he is God to us. Uh, then you come along and you go, okay, so, so is that what the rest of the world says? How can we trust what the Bible says about Jesus is actually what Jesus said? And you start to kind of spread out and look at um, other non-Christian sources. Um, and Non-Christian sources, none of them say that Jesus is God, because if they did say that, they'd be Christian sources, right? It's impossible to find a non-Christian source that says Jesus is God and he's the Messiah, because we just call them Christian sources. Um, but non-Christian sources say there was definitely people followed him as a miracle worker, uh, people like Josephus and Tacitus. Um, you see there's a, there's a letter from uh, Pliny writing to the Emperor Trajan. Uh, and he's saying that um, I'm trying to kill these, these, these Christians, um, but they're gathering together on a Sunday and they're worshipping Jesus as God. So there's non-Christian sources that point us to what the Bible is saying that add to the verifiability, the veracity of, of the Scriptures. And so if those things went on and, and Jesus is God the Son, then what Jesus says is what God says. And then Jesus in Matthew 28 sends out the disciples, those who are with him, and says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, go into the world and tell people the news of who Jesus is. Jesus sends them. And if he is God and he sends the apostles out to tell people about him, and those apostles then write down and agree with and say that these words collected in the different Gospels and the New Testament letters are legit, which is kind of there. So Peter calls Paul's writings, he equates them with Scripture. Then what we have in the Bible is what God is saying to us. There's a, there's a quick picture of how we can trust that what Jesus said is what the Bible says and therefore what God says. If you've got more questions than that, there's, there's lots more to look at. Come and chat to me later. Uh, happy to talk through that in more detail. But that's my medium-length answer. 
All right, second question. Why did God come only to the Jews at first? It seems unfair to the other nations. Yeah, uh, really helpful question. Um, the first thing I need to say is, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know why God chose the Jews. Um, bear in mind, when God did come to the Jews, do you know how many of them there were? One. Abraham. He said, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you into a nation. So God didn't choose the Jews. He just chose this schmuck called Abraham. And Abraham didn't have it all together. And he said, I'm going to make you into the big daddy. Because his name was Abraham, father. It's going to be big father. I'm going to make you into the father of many nations. Uh, And I'm going to bless the world through you. So God chooses no one. Why did God choose a, a nobody nation? So we could be absolutely sure that it had nothing to do with them. Something special about the Jews other than that God made them. He made them into a nation. It's all God's work. So as we look at God working through the Jews, we stand back and go, wow, God, how great are you? And all throughout the, Israel's history in the Old Testament, they, they go well for a bit, then bad, then well, then bad, then bad, then bad, then bad. Right? That's what happens. Because they're humans like us. And so God came to work through the Jews. And it's not just that he only cared about the Jews. His aim was to bless the world through them. God's care was for, for, for the world, to see all nations blessed through them. And you get a hint of it um, through uh, Solomon, when, when Solomon is there and, and the Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon and wants to know of his wisdom and the nations are kind of flocking in, but they give up on God. And what happens is God needs to bring about a new people and he does that in Jesus, in this well of water that's springing up into new life. Now, it seems unfair to the other nations. Well, here's the thing. If we actually want what's fair then we're asking God to give every person what we deserve. Abraham didn't deserve the promises of God. And neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob, neither did the Hittites or the Perizzites or the Canaanites or, 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 or the Kiwis or the Australians, right? None of us deserve God's blessing. In fact, if we want what, God, what we deserve, well, we've said to God, I don't want you. I don't want to treat you as my God in every area of my life. I've not treated you perfectly. I've, I've lied. I've, I've not treated you as, as the ruler of every area. And so therefore, I actually, I actually deserve death. And so if we want what's fair, if we want God to be fair, we say everyone dies. Everyone faces God's judgment and that is it. Because that's what we deserve. But God in his blessing has gone, I actually want to, for my own sake... I want to bring you to life. And through this nation of Israel, and particularly through the person of Jesus, I want to bring salvation to the world. And that's why Christians are so excited to talk about Jesus and to share Jesus with the world, because in him, you can have life. And so God has shown that love in him. All right, next question. Uh, How did the Messiah fit into the Samaritan beliefs, where most of the promises about him are only in the Jewish writings? Yeah, great question. Um, what you're seeing is the Samaritans believe the first five, five books of the Bible. Um, and, and so in that, uh, they're getting the promises of God. Uh, they are the kind of half-cousins of the Jews. And so they knew of this, this promise that was coming. You get it in Genesis 3, um, that the woman uh, will strike the serpent's, or the child of the woman will strike the serpent's head, and the serpent will strike his heel, and they will die. And there's this promise of one who will come. Uh, You keep seeing these pictures even through Deuteronomy as they're heading into the promised land uh, that God will rescue them and take them through. And they all kind of point to this idea of a Messiah. And so I'm no Samaritan scholar, um, but I take it that from that, they did have this expectation, and we hear it here, uh, of the Messiah coming. 
And so I think that's where you've got to go. Okay, they were worshipping God on this other mountain. They had their, their own beliefs. They had come in, in in that way somehow. Uh, to find out more about that, I have to get back to you some more, do a bit more research. So come and chat to me later and we can talk more. Um, next question. Eternal life sounds like a pipe dream, a fantasy even. Uh, is eternal life a reasonable hope or a fanciful dream? Oh, look, I've got to be totally honest with you. It's a pipe dream. It's a fanciful hope, right? Who could live forever? Can, has anyone got any concept of living forever? It, it feels like, what? We don't recognize that anywhere. We don't see that anywhere around us. Death is the norm. But that's what makes Jesus so unique. The fact that he rose makes life after death a possibility. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uh, talks about his, um, the resurrection hope that we have and the reality that you know, over 300 people, 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead, that there was a guy that rose. Paul says if Jesus didn't rise, the whole Christian faith, it's a waste of time. His resurrection didn't happen, but history has this kind of imprint, this resurrection-shaped dent in it, that something happened with Jesus, that people worshipped him as God. Why do they do that? It wasn't like they waited hundreds and hundreds of years. They went, oh, let's, let's now follow this Jesus figure from you know, centuries ago. People followed him and died for their beliefs within living memory while others were around. Uh, and so as we see Christians trust in the resurrection of Jesus, um, we recognize that actually while the idea of life forever or resurrection is a fanciful thing or is like a, hey, I don't, I don't see that anywhere else. The point is history points to the fact that it happened. And Jesus rose and people worshipped him as God. And so what you've got to do at that point is, while it sounds like a pipe dream, you have to deal with the evidence that exists, that history points to the fact that Jesus rose. That people worshipped him as God and that uh, they followed him and died for him. And so that's the question. that You need to do what the Samaritans did and come and check out the evidence. C- come and see if the claims around Jesus of, of life forever are actually um, backed up by the reality that he rose. Did he rise from the dead? Now that's your question. All right, uh, next question. Are Christians still broken when Jesus, the fullness of God, is within us? Uh, yes. Are Christians still broken when Jesus, the fullness of God, is within us? Uh, yeah, we are. Because uh, what you see, uh, you see this from the Apostle Paul when he writes, he says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. See, Christians, we don't think that this, this, this life of eternal life that has been offered um, is what we experience right here and now. Uh, to, to do that is to bring the promises of God in eternity back to here, that there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. I still hurt. I'm only 38. But I get up in the morning, I'm like, oh, I'm sore. I turned to Sarah the other day and went like, I'm getting old. I kind of, things don't work kind of as well. And I went down the stairs and both my ankles crack every morning. I'm like, Why is that? Right? I don't feel like there's no more pain or mourning or crying right now. And that's exactly what the Bible promises, that right now we'll have all sorts of suffering and realities because death has not been finally dealt with. Satan has not been put away eternally. And sin is still kind of bumping us around and we make choices that are dumb. But uh, Paul tells us that if you trust in Jesus, that spiritually you're seated in the heavenly realms right now, that Jesus has died your death and your resurrection is secure. And so we live in this this age that's between uh, what, the promises of God that we have now of Jesus living in us or God living in us by his spirit and the promises to come when there is no more mourning or crying or pain. We, we call it the now but not yet tension. We are now in Christ, but we not yet experience the full blessings of Christ. 
And so the point is that while Christ is in us and we can recognize God and we can treat Jesus as our king because of the spirit in us and we can speak to God as our father and we can have that certain hope of the future because of Jesus' resurrection, we still groan, waiting for the day Jesus comes back and puts all things right. So yeah, we are still broken. Um, But we have new hearts and we have God in us by his spirit and he's making us more and more like Jesus until that final day when we move from being totally broken to being totally like him. Okay, last question. Uh, what does it look like to live with confident faith like the royal official and walk away from Jesus trusting his word? How do I balance that with putting effort in on my own part? Okay, that's a great, these are great questions. Well done. Um, what does it look like to live with a confident faith like the royal official? It, it means this. It means taking Jesus at his word. It means saying, I'm actually going to trust your opinion of you and your opinion of me over my own. I'm going to trust that that you are the Messiah, God's promised King, and that in you and only in you is found life. And so I'm going to therefore treat you as my King. I'm going to let you call the shots in my life. Not in order to be saved. I'm not going to try and treat you as my King so that I might be good enough for you and one day you might like me and think, okay, I'll take scummy Rowan and, and bring him into my kingdom. No, but I'm going to go, because Jesus died for me, because he rose again and offers me life, I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to serve him because he is my king. And my only hope on that day that Jesus comes back and all my my sins and my life are bared for all to see and God will judge me. My only hope is in the word of Jesus, that he has died in my place, that he has risen again, and that he has paid the price for me. And so what the Christian life looks like is saying, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your word over my word. When it comes down to my view and your view, I'm going to take what you say. I'm going to let your word shape what I live for. I'm going to find satisfaction in loving my king and living for him and sharing the news of the gospel with others around me and and, and trusting you that your way is right. So often we kind of come up hard and go, I don't think this is right. I want to live a different way. or I don't want to put you first. Living with Jesus as our king with a confident faith is saying, not my will, but yours. I put my life in your hands. Now, that means we need to put effort in ourselves. We actually need to make a decision to keep trusting him. And maybe for you tonight, it's time to make that decision. Maybe it's time to go, hey, I want in. Or maybe it's time to say, I'm going to stop pretending I'm in. I'm actually going to go, no, I'm going to put my life in your hands fully. I'm going to get out of the driver's seat of a life called mine. I'm going to let Jesus drive. I'm going to sit alongside and go, wherever you go, Jesus, that's where I am. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us to keep thinking through this stuff, mulling over it, thinking through what it means, and to come out understanding him. Let's pray again. Lord, tonight, many of us have questions around who you are and what you've done and what that means for us and how we respond. We ask you tonight that by your spirit, you would reach into our lives and you'd fix our eyes on the horizon of who Jesus is. That you would bring us to yourself to love you and to know you and to serve you and you would fill us with a sense of joy and satisfaction in knowing that eternal life is ours and that you are our King. Father God, tonight, please help us to be so captured by Jesus that we live for him in everything. Pray this in his great name. Amen.